most women who were in positions of authority within the community exercise authority by influence, by encouragement, by uh, humility, and by humor. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. I think you're mixing up your metaphors there, Dave. Yeah. Um, turning around the corner, it's the number five horse, Bob Maisler. <laughs> yeah, forget, forget the horse analogy. Have you ever ridden a horse, Bob? Yeah, I have, but I'm pretty allergic to them, so I don't do it often. Huh. Wow. The things you learn, right? I had no idea. I had no idea that you were allergic to horses. You do a podcast and you'll learn new things about yourself and yeah, your loved there ones. You go. Well, Bob, if you're sounding good and I'm sounding good, we might as well uh, have a sip of our coffee and get off to the races and see what happens on today's podcast. Are you excited? I am, Dave. Thank you for m- reminding me about my coffee. And let's let's get on our horses and go. Sweet. Well, it feels like a while since I've talked with you, to be honest. I don't know if we've really chatted much since the last podcast. Just here and there, I guess. Yeah, life moves so quickly and a lot happens in a week, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Although... I did get a little bit of a job promotion. I have my own classroom this upcoming year. I'm pretty excited about that. That's right. Big job. That's a huge congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Bob. That yeah. feels like it that feels like it happened a month ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does at this point. And maybe you could give the listeners just a very very brief snippet of how you're feeling about having your own classroom going into the fall school year. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just a mix of everything, right? I feel so much excitement about uh, what I get to teach and how I'm going to teach it and all the ideas that have been brewing up in my brain. And yeah, I'm also a lot of nervousness about what the year might look like with COVID and how it might change and all those things. Um, It just feels like there's so many unknowns right now. I think that's always like a hard moment to f- to be at this like edge where you don't know exactly what's going to happen or how it's going to happen and yeah i feel just like those transition moments are hard and beautiful and it's kind of like all mixed up in one big emotional thing you know oh i imagine so that there's a lot of feelings involved and yeah rightfully so and just really want you to appreciate how far you've come and that you're going to be teaching your own fourth grade class in Fort Collins, Colorado. That's that's amazing. Amazing stuff, Dave. Thanks, Bob. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I also um, might appear on another podcast this week. Ooh, no. good. It's actually in two weeks. Yeah. I've been chatting on the podcast forums a little bit and some guy uh, I can't even remember the name of his podcast. I should look at it, but yeah, he started a podcast and we started chatting and we might do a little discussion, which would be kind of fun to be on someone else's podcast, you know? 
That'd be amazing. Thanks for getting out there, Dave, into that jungly world of podcasts. It's really thick jungle out there. Gosh, there's probably so many podcasts, don't you think, out there? Yeah, there are. I mean, sure, you got the big ones like Thriving in Dystopia, but, you know, all the little guys. (laughs) The minnows out there. Anyhow, Bob, uh, you excited for today's show? Yeah, we got a real special show, real special, and I'm excited for it. How about yourself? Yeah, this is a show that kind of cropped up out of nowhere, and I'm pretty stoked that we are going to be talking about all the things we're going to talk about. We have a guest on today's show, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about what where it comes from, why we're trying to do this show. Sure. Uh, yeah, I feel like... A long time ago, before our dad passed away, I definitely wanted to sit him down and have some conversations with him and be like, just like ask him questions that I felt like after he died that I wouldn't be able to ask him those type of questions. Yeah, I think it's just a good practice for people to ask those harder questions to their loved ones, you know, whether it's uh, their parents that they want to chat with or friends that they want to chat with. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there is, there's definitely a lot of precedent for it too. Like Julie right now is trying to delve deeper into her parents' history and she's having conversations with them about their childhood and all those memories that get brought up that, and all the stories. And I feel like even though we know our parents so well, it's, there's just so many like little things that we don't know about. Yeah, I feel like I had a conversation with our mom this summer, and I was just blown away by the fact that she calls corn chips tortilla chips. No, no, taco chips. She doesn't call them corn or tortilla chips. She calls them taco chips. And we ended up talking for like an hour about sort of why she might call them taco chips and the first time she ever had tacos. And yeah, it was really cool to hear all those stories, but yeah, without going too much into detail, we're excited because we get to have our mom on the show today. Mom's here. <laughs> hi guys. Mom. Hey mom. Hi. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. This is a very sweet experience for me and a little nerve wracking too. So, um, I'm glad to join both of you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, we're, we're so amazed that this can happen, and I'm so looking forward to hearing your stories, Mom. Her experiences being a nun, her sort of growing up, and you know why she decided to become a nun, and then how that's impacted her. Um, and then we can talk about how that's relevant to thriving in dystopia towards the end of the podcast. So maybe without further ado, Mom, do you want to tell the, our listeners who you are and how, what it means for you to be a nun, where that came from? Sure, yeah. I think you both know that uh, while I was born in Ohio, I grew up in Michigan, a small town outside of Detroit, and I grew up in a very big Catholic family. I was one of nine kids, the middle of nine kids. There were five boys and four girls. And my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked 
in an automotive factory outside of Detroit. And my parents grew up in the Depression. And when Dave talked about uh, regretting, you know, possibly not knowing more about uh, parents, I, I had that feeling too. A couple of years ago, I was writing a reflection on Father's Day, and I thought about my own dad, and since my parents were in their 20s during the Depression, I was thinking, gee, I wish I had asked my dad about that. You know, what was it like to not have enough food to eat? I can appreciate why it's a good thing to really talk to your parents while they're alive so that, you know, as adult children, you you have different kinds of questions to ask Anyway, my, my parents, um, my dad was smart. He was self-taught. If he had had the money to go to college, I think that he would have been an engineer. But it was important for my parents that all of us, all nine of us, uh, all, we, all nine children go to Catholic school. And I, in fact, had 16 years of Catholic education. So... I was exposed to Catholic sisters from the time I was six years old. And connecting to Catholic nuns wasn't really unremarkable. Uh, Catholic sisters were sort of everywhere in my experience. I went to a Catholic women's college in the 1960s. And I was exposed to the Sisters of Mercy. After I finished my nursing degree, I was 22 years old. And I decided to join those sisters because of the work that they did in healthcare. Can I ask you a quick question, Mom? Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when you were going to college to study nursing, were you also in the convent? No. I was a commuter student. I lived at home. I only, I put myself through college. I only had enough money to pay for uh, tuition, so I commuted back and forth every day. And I really didn't know I wanted to join the convent until my last year of college. I really, you know, that wasn't really on my agenda when I went to nursing school. When you were when you were going through college, was your vision that when you came out you'd be a nurse, and it kind of yeah. changed, like that vision sort of shifted. It seems as you went through college. Yes, I I would describe myself by the end of my college career as being very idealistic. Um, you know, it was the nineteen sixties, and it was the time of President uh, John Kennedy. John Kennedy started the Peace Corps during the early 1960s, and I actually seriously considered joining the Peace Corps. But I think deep down inside, I wanted to give my life to the service of the church, to God, to serving the poor as a nurse. And I 
also came out came out of a family who had very little wealth. Uh, by the time I was finished with college, I I didn't own anything of any consequence. So the idea of being drawn to a life where you uh, took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience were, uh, wasn't unfamiliar to me because I sort of felt like I was already living that lifestyle. I was poor, mm. chaste, and somewhat obedient. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that moment, I've never asked you about that moment, but that I kind of feel like we all have those moments in our lives that are super transformative. You know, the, the moment when you decided to be a nun and sort of start down that path, does that, is that like a memory that you have? Is that a moment that feels really strong to you or was it over the course of a lot of different moments? I think it was evolutionary. It wasn't, you know, a single moment like Paul being struck from his horse and, you know, sit and encountering God. It, you know, I never really had a moment like that. But it was, I would say, based on the relationships that I had formed with the sisters. In particular, I had a spiritual director. When I was in college, I would go to this particular sister on a regular basis and just kind of come to a self-discovery. And um, so it was a slow evolution of trying to decide how God was working in my life and what values I, I, I found important and how I might live out those values in a way that felt authentic to me. So I think it was more that the women in my life were just so appealing and lived such a consistently uh, authentic life. And then mom, what was it like in the convent? What was it like joining it? Like, were you welcomed in? Then how long were you there? And what was that whole experience like for you, both on like a day-to-day -day basis, but then in the overall scope of your own life? What did it mean for you? Okay, so just to say something about uh, maybe just a religious life in 1964 when I joined. It was the peak uh, period in which re uh, religious women joined religious orders. Uh, in America at that time, there were 180,000 women uh, who were members of religious orders. You know, when you think about that, uh, almost a quarter of a million religious women. I, 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 I found that quite staggering. So at that time, there were hundreds of different religious orders that a, a woman could join. And I joined the one that I knew most because 
the women I cared about were doing nursing and teaching. So there was a, a real emphasis in the Sisters of Mercy around education and um, both professional development and spiritual development. So when I joined, there was a lot of emphasis on development. When a young woman entered a religious order, they went through a period of formation. And formation was, it could be like five or six years in length. And at the end of formation, a young woman would take temporary vows, followed by another extended period in which you were continually discerning, you know, whether you wanted to be a sister or not. Um, and that was culminated by taking final vows. So formation was a period where you'd learned something about yourself, about the movement of God in your life. Uh, you learned something about the discipline of prayer, of meditation, of self-examination. And you learned a lot about the give and take of living in community life, obeying rules, rules that weren't established by you, but you know you had to conform to, uh, sometimes rules that had no reasonable purpose that you could understand. So when I entered, I became a postulant for the first year, a novice for the next two years, um, then a young professed sister. Mostly what you did was uh, study, a lot of praying. Uh, you did chores, physical work, and recreation. Your life was extremely structured from the minute you got up. You were called out of bed at 6 in the morning, and you went to bed religiously at 10, lights out. So it was, it, in some ways, it was structured like um, military. There were periods of the day, at least five periods of the day, when you went to chapel. Uh, you ate in silence. Uh, there were days in which you could talk to people, but it was very routinized. And it was in that period of early formation when I really, I think, learned the discipline of uh, silence, living with silence and enjoying silence. Mom, can I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah. Are there any like strong memories that are coming up for you during this formation period for you? Like, is there a moment that feels really strong for you? Well, early in my formation, I had an experience where, um, you know, we weren't allowed to see our families. We could only see them at certain times of the year. We could write to our families but we actually could only see them at Christmas and Easter. So 
that was really difficult. And I, it was difficult not just for me as a young person, you know, away from my family for the first time, but it was very hard for my parents, my mother especially. Uh, I was quite attached to my mother, and I think, you know, she relied on me. And uh, she, uh, you probably remember that your grandmother was a seamstress, and she, the only way she could think about, you know, staying attached to me would be by making things for me. And I remember one Christmas, she made these, this nightgown for me. And we were only allowed to wear nightgowns that were white, but my mother sent me a red nightgown. <laughs> <laughs> and the minute I opened that nightgown, I thought, oh my God, this is trouble. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do because it, it was an important gift from my mother, important yeah. way of telling me that, you know, this was a way to stay attached. But in, in the days of um, being in the novitiate, you had to ask permission for every gift. You had to get down on your knees and show your mother's superior what you got and ask for permission to have it. <laughs> Whoa. What? That's wild. Yeah. And what did your mother superior say? Oh, it was so awful to go into her office, <laughs> kneel down, open yeah. up the box, and show, you know, my mother superior what I had received. <laughs> and And to say that, not only uh, did this come from my mother, but could I, in fact, have it? <laughs> wow. Uh, it, it was so painful and embarrassing. And I, the minute I asked for it, uh, you know, the mother superior said no. Oh. And uh, I had to give it up, had to give hmm. it over. And you know this is this is part of learning obedience, and to allow someone else to make decisions about your life. And uh, I just had to let it go, let it go. At some point, I actually got that red nightgown back, and I, I can't really? remember. I can't remember the circumstances, and I don't know how long it took for me to actually get that, but I, I remember sharing this experience, you know, later with some of my classmates, and we all had this a big belly laugh, you know, about that experience because they all knew. They all knew that I was on my knees asking for this, and they knew I wasn't going to get it. Right. <laughs> wow. What a, what a legendary nightgown. I wonder where that is now, you know? 
<laughs> no idea. You can layer uh, Krista Berg's song "Lady in Red" over this part of the <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it was nice. humiliating. I, yeah, I feel like those are the stories that always are so intriguing to me. Just to hear, it feels like such a different life and such a different time and such a in a lot of ways such a different person you know and those are the moments that definitely like as you call them the formation years you know they're like formative uh-huh. years for you which is so so cool to think about were you at this time were you living with a lot of your nun friends that bob and i have come to know and love over the years like were you with squeaker and mary lou and you know linda uh, yes. Mary Kay actually was in the class ahead of me, and Linda was in the class behind me. So, um, <laughs> I think we, we became close because we were all going through formation, and even though we were in, not in the same uh, entrance class, we, we became close because... During recreation, during chores, during various classes that we took, uh, we had an opportunity to get to know each other. So, yeah, we had a lot of the same history. Can you talk about that a little bit more? You brought up the power dynamics between you and the Mother Superior. I'm thinking here about you joining this um, you know, sister order and other organizations that people join, the people who have been there longest, sometimes haze them and they have like the seniority power. Did you see any of those power dynamics or how did the nuns wield power or share power? I'm curious about that. Women I knew, I guess they would fall into two categories. They wielded power by virtue of their positions. So the uh, sister who was the provincial uh, wielded a lot of power because it was the role of the provincial when you, you know, as you moved along in your various steps of formation, uh, the very first year after you um, were in the, the community, you, got, you received your veil, your white veil, the veil of the novice. And you also got your name. You got your religious name at the end of the first year. So the woman who was in the role of the provincial got to name you. That was a very empowering position to be in. And you could have a really lousy name or a really uplifting name. Um, And I don't think it was, it wasn't anything that the provincial would hold over you. But it was something perhaps maybe subtle. Um, At the end of the first year, I was given the name Elena because that was the Spanish version of Helen, I, I felt that that was a name I could live with. I wouldn't have to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. What, what are these lousy names? I'm so curious. 
Uh, <laughs> well, like, would you like to be called Sister Mary Reginald? <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think I'll take a pass on that. Reginald, huh? Yeah. Al would you like to be called Aloysius? You know, I think that's Nick Cantrick's confirmation name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I think you might have to take that up with him. <laughs> I'm just saying that Elena wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah, no. Pretty that's good. good. Uh, the, the other thing is most women who were in positions of authority within the community, like the woman who was the president of the college, exercise authority by influence, by encouragement, by uh, humility, and by humor. And it was those women that I found so appealing. I, I, I just try to emulate those women. They were women who were intellectually gifted. They were bright. They were smart. They could hold their own in any kind of professional circles. I just thought they were the kind of people I wanted to be. That's awesome. Maybe that goes into maybe you could talk about your how the latter years of your experience in the convent were after formation. And how long were you there, mom? I was there 14 years. So, so I entered. Eight years I after. Yeah, I entered in 1964 and I stayed until 1978. So when I got out of formation, you know, as I say, uh, I entered in the 1960s. The thing about the 1960s, in addition to all of, you know, the social unrest that is conjured up when you think about the 60s, you think of the civil rights era, you think of the Kennedy brothers who were assassinated and Martin Luther King. But for Catholics, the 1960s conjures up Vatican II. Uh, the Vatican II Council was a an event that was called by Pope John the 23rd and it was really a call to the modernization of the Catholic Church Pope John Paul was a, a wonderful um, Pope progressive in his own way and what he said about the Catholic Church is that the church is really the people of God not church structures and we need to get out out away from our walls that hold us in and he was calling for a new kind of ecumenism with other churches a reconciliation with our Jewish brothers and sisters uh, he was calling for the Catholic Church to really breathe in new life to create uh, more inroads and he in particular he called on religious women's orders to go back to their founders and to reignite the spirit of their founders reevaluate their missions and to look at the needs of the 
modern world and to tailor their work towards the modern um, needs. And so from my point of view, that was the period in which uh, religious life changed. It became more exciting, more progressive. Uh, it gave us an opportunity to really think about serving the church in a way that the church had not been served by religious orders. Does that conjure up any questions for you? Yeah, it does, because I remember you telling me that this was probably the period where you started to get involved in activism or social issues that were connected to your your religious or spiritual work. Is that true? And if so, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so this would be like we're moving into the 1970s. And because the Sisters of Mercy really wanted to relook at mission, one of the things that the sisters as a community decided was that we would identify people in the community who would do peace and justice work. And I became the first Sister of Mercy to be taken from my ministry. I was teaching nursing at Mercy College at that time. And the sisters asked me to do full-time peace and justice work. And so that was quite, I mean, to give resources to that was uh, really an opportunity for me to kind of take up social activism. And, uh, of course, at this time, many uh, sisters were leaving their traditional habits behind and wearing street clothes so that, you know, we looked more like uh, people we were working with. Uh, the 1970s, while I was doing peace and justice work, was also the time when uh, the women's liberation movement happened. And I can tell you, women found their voices in the women's liberation movement, you know, and that included women in the church. That movement had a big impact on uh, the holy walls of the convent. Uh, women who had always felt called to the priesthood started speaking up about ministry that was different than uh, what they were doing. They, women in the church were demanding change in the church, opportunities for power sharing like they had never experienced before. It was a time of a lot of confrontation even within the church because the power structure, uh, and by that I mean uh, bishops, cardinals, the pope, uh, was really threatened by uh, women who were becoming quite vocal and maybe even characterizing them as becoming too uppity. That's so interesting, Mom. That's a lot of, yeah, things that we could dig into there. 
Well, a question you might ask is, um, when did you notice the uh, decline in vocations and the attrition that was going on in religious orders? I mean, how, when did that start happening and why did it occur? Yeah, it's probably something that um, our audience doesn't necessarily even know about like that decline. So just what you said. Yeah. Could you go into that? When did it start? What does it look like now and, and why? Yeah. So I, I said before that 1965 was kind of the peak year when there were 185,000 uh, women religious um, across uh, the United States. But in the 1970s, that was the time when uh, religious vocations started to decline and when um, a lot of religious women left their uh, orders. Uh, there was a lot of social uh, shifting going on inside religious uh, orders. It was quite profound. Met many members of religious orders, at le you know, particularly older women did not like the shifts that was taking place, did not like the change uh, because they had, were used to traditional uh, religious life with, you know, lots of structure, lots of stability, and there was anything but stability going on. Uh, so there, internally, there were lots of arguments and dissension about which way religious life was going to go. Uh, women in the ages between, I would say, 25 and 45, uh, in that demographic, those women left in the largest numbers. They left for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, the reasons why I could discern it was because many of them were out in the world involved in careers that threw them into interactions with lay people, with other church people, with priests. Uh, many uh, women religious who had not had any kind of social interaction with men decided to leave for marriage. Uh, some women left because they experienced the freedom that they hadn't experienced up until now. Some women left because of just the general disruption and turmoil. Some left because of church patriarchy. Uh, they had confronted the patriarchy in the church and could not stand it. They were impatient with change and uh, did not see that the hierarchy was going to change. And then in the 1970s, there was the beginning of a retrenchment towards conservatism in the church in general. All of those things, I think, left people with a, just a discouragement about um, the vitality that was present in the 60s was already starting to um, diminish by the 70s. 
And so then what is the current situation? Are convents very like shrunk in size and have some closed or what does that look like? So I, I went back to look at some of the statistics, you know, just where are religious orders by the numbers. And there's a center at Georgetown University that keeps track of all of these kinds of statistics, not just about religious uh, women, but uh, about religious participation, you know, lay people as well. And um, in, in 2009, uh, according to this Georgetown University Center, uh, they determined that there were worldwide 729,000 sisters worldwide, but in the United States there were only 56,000 sisters. So that would be a shrinking of like, was it from 180 down to 56,000? From 185,000 down to 56,000. Wow, yeah. that's huge. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. The, when you look at religious life today, religious communities of women fall into two categories. There are liberal progressive sisters, of which the Sisters of Mercy is still a um, major uh, leader. And then there are conservative communities of religious women. I, I think you probably have heard me talk about the LCWR, the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. These are the women that it was, I think, John Paul II, who wanted the, the, these congregations investigated. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. A few years ago. Yes. And this took place like in around 2012. This was the year, you know, Dad was so sick. And I remember distinctly sitting down and writing a letter to... Um, Cardinal Dolan, who was in charge of the Catholic Conference of Bishops at that time. And I wrote this letter just demanding that they stop this investigation of religious orders. And I put out my letter and I circulated it. And within a day, I had this two two pages of women, the former sisters, who wanted to sign that um, letter. I remember and that. And to, to be a part of that. And it was amazing how quickly other religious women kind of rallied around the women who were under attack. It, it was quite remarkable, and I've never forgotten that. That was awesome, Mom. Yeah, yeah. I did come across this uh, quote that I want to kind of share with you. I don't know if there's enough time to do that. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, let's see. Maybe is the quote, 
I kind of want to ask you one more question before. Oh, I sure, sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, the In the year 2020, this year, with everything happening politically, socially, and environmentally, living in a dystopia, as we talk about on this podcast, how have your experiences as a nun, how have they shaped how you face or encounter the social conditions of 2020 it is maybe you can um just take a slice of it not the whole thing (laughs) um i guess i would face 2020 by going back to my own roots the you know my Catholic roots, my uh, religious community roots, and I would examine, you know, who am I and what am I about? What, what kind of world have I always wanted to create for myself, for my loved ones, for, you know, my neighborhood, my church? I go back to those roots of wanting everyone to flourish. I mean, that. I guess that's what I see my ministry always about. I want people to be able to flourish in, in terms of health care, in terms of uh, being able to live freely, to have um, the potential to live a life that, you know, each person was meant to live. So I guess in a world of dystopia, I would fight for everybody's opportunity to live, you know, peacefully, wholly, uh, without violence. And I guess I feel like I would want all of us to be involved in translating, you know, the protests in the streets to policies that make all that happen for real people. That's beautiful. That's really great. That idea of that every, every single person matters and um, especially those who are facing oppression and, and violence. So thank you, mom. Yeah. yeah, do you want to read your the quote that you brought in? Well, it's uh, maybe I should just say that uh, part of where I think the Catholic Church is going is that they have lost not only sisters in religious orders, but they have lost members in churches. And this, this came... Uh, to our awareness in the 1990s with the sex abuse scandal. You know, the church has, has had to face that particular event. And because of that, many Catholics left the church in big, big numbers. So when you talk about women entering religious life, you have to appreciate that many people have already left the church. And they're, (laughs) 
the largest number of people in our country are actually unchurched people, unaffiliated people. So religious communities have fewer people to draw from because since the 1990s, there are fewer Catholics. So the quote is, since a significant number of young adult Catholic women have fallen away from religious practice, religious institutes have the challenge of trying to recruit women who are also struggling with their deep ambivalence towards the church. This is an issue that belongs to the entire church, not just to religious institutes. Does that make sense to you? That distinction of that it belongs to the church, not just religious institutes. Yeah. Does it mean that is the church in that sense, like everyone who is a, a practicing Catholic, like the community? Or does it mean the church like the Vatican? It means the church as an institution is struggling with numbers, not just religious orders are struggling with numbers. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So, yes. So that's the challenge. Uh, you know, don't just point to religious orders and say, you know, you really need to come up with numbers. It's the church as an institution um, is suffering. Big questions to end the episode with yeah. the last two questions. And that's great to end on open, openness. I would just yeah. say that I'm really happy you came in, Mom, and sharing those stories are a real deep sense of connection for me. And thank you. Yeah, likewise, I feel like I could could have listened and asked a thousand more questions. I felt so many questions coming up as we were talking today and um, all the new bits that I learned felt really sweet. It feels like a little treasure that I have with me now. So that feels great. Just want to thank you, mom, for not only just today, but literally all the stuff you've done for Bob and I feels amazing. So thank you, mom. Well, let's keep the conversation going guys. Okay. Yeah, mom. Yeah, let's keep that conversation going. Okay. <laughs> so should we talk a little bit about what you're tuned into, everybody? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, why don't we let uh why don't we let mom go first? Mom, what are you tuned into? Well, this really came as a result of a recommendation from you, Dave. You you suggested that I watch the Netflix a series on Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And oh, nice. The last so, dance. Yeah. So last night I watched the first episode of it and oh my, it was, it was quite amazing. Uh, I, as you know, <laughs> I've watched a lot of basketball, um, not because that was my preference, but because it was always on at our house. And <laughs> I, I was quite impressed with Michael Jordan as a person. Um, I think I said this um, to you, Dave, that 
I never really experienced Michael Jordan as a person who had a family uh, because he was always such a big superstar. He was always a person who just existed all on his own. But last night I saw that he had two boys and he had a mom and dad and he was connected to them and he it, it was he he became more human to me. So I am really happy to launch this um, series now. Thanks. Yeah, of course. What about you, Bob? Um, I think I'll share that I have, with the influence of my partner, been reading more astrology. And my good friend Penske did my astrological chart a few years ago. So I've been um, diving into astrology uh, once again. And there's a book that um, my partner's reading called something like uh, This is the Way You Were Born. And there's, a, I guess I'll also want to link people to a podcast called The Astrology Podcast, an episode called Intersectionality, Intersectionality and Astrology that my friend Penske told me about. And it's a really great coming together of social justice and astrology uh, that has been really eye-opening. So that's my tune in. Well, I just started a new TV show this week as well. It is on, I think it's on HBO, but I am watching it through the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine's Amazon account. It is the <laughs> new the new Watchmen show. So after last week's superhero talk, mom had cut out a newspaper clipping and said that the Watchmen's up for something like 26 Emmys. And I said, enough's enough. I better get on this show and... I watched the first episode and was blown away by how much it is like a part of what we do on this show. It talks about, it's like takes place in this dystopian world and it's really cool. I, I mean, I'm, I've only seen one episode, but there is the lead character is like this really badass black woman who is a crime fighter and it's, all the people, all the like super villains so far, they're a bunch of people that wear these Rorschach, Rorschach masks. And it's kind of like the, the next step of the KKK. And it's just really interesting how it weaves race into dystopia in, in a way that is engaging. And I'm really excited to see where the, the series goes. I haven't had a chance to get after more of the episodes, but I am stoked and I am not surprised that it's up for like 26 Emmys. Did I say Oscars earlier? I think you said Tony's. No, I'm just kidding. Tony. Yeah. <laughs> I got one more question for mom before we leave. Oh, sure. Sure. Mom, as a listener of the podcast, what are th- what's one thing you like about it? And what's one thing you might suggest for the future that we could do? Well, I've always been really impressed with the conversational tone between you two brothers. I like the spirit that goes on between the two of you. Um, I guess I would recommend uh, bringing in other voices to the degree that you can. 
because I think that animates both of you and it gives you an opportunity to learn and um, it just you know is a opportunity for your listeners also to learn so oh yeah that's, that's really wonderful feedback mom thank you and I hope okay. I hope you had a good time on the show today after I got over my nervousness, yeah, then I relaxed a little bit. So <laughs> it, it's a new experience for me. Yeah. Nice. Well, if you uh, want to email us, you can email us at davepeachtree at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at bmaze19 or get after us on Instagram at thriving in dystopia and if you want to contact my mom, you should just uh, email email me, and I'll I'll forward forward you the message. Forward her the message. Okay, I might and, answer. Yeah, after last week's episode, we still have a contest going on. We're gonna leave it open for one more week, and then we're gonna close it down and send out all those crush the patriarchy stickers. So get out there and share share the podcast with those people that you love. We've already gotten a lot of great great feedback from it, so it feels good. Yeah. Appreciate the listeners who've given us feedback. Yeah. Sweet. Well, shall we close it down there, y'all? Okay. <laughs> let's do it. Let's let's go out there and um, just live the spirit of Helen Maisler and Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Love you guys. You too. Love you. Too. Love, you. Love you both. Hey, what's up, y'all? Bob and I just want to take that second and thank you all for those years that you keep on lending us. It seriously means the world to us, and we couldn't, and we wouldn't be doing this without you. So thanks so much. We also want to thank the artists for making our podcast a little bit more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford, and our new outro song is called The Time for Action by Kennedy. And as always, the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine did our thumbnail art. Well, we'll see you next Tuesday. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Action, 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 action. Lisa y sanamente, la cruda y febrada la vivimos en el presente. Tirados sin piedad y perdidos entre la gente. En esta realidad esperando pacientemente. El cambio ya se siente, te mienten. Los que dicen ver una grieta presentan argumentos sin evidencia concreta. Hacen de todo un cuento para que se real de al lado. Un mensaje para ellos, el número están superados. Tantos de mi clase que no tienen dónde ir Sin nadie que los ampare ni razón para existir Odiándose entre ellos al no poder recurrir A un sistema que los mata y solamente quiere huir Se niega a abrir los ojos a ver tantas injusticias La calle es color rojo y nunca salen las noticias Manipulan a su antojo, nos dejan en la inmundicia Pero ahora su despojo va a ser la única primicia